Welcome to the latest edition of Food Systems Podcast, produced by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. I'm Mark Titrington, and today I'm talking to Janis Potoshnik, former two-term European Commissioner, co-chair of the United Nations International Resources Panel, and of course, the chairman of the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Janis, a very warm welcome to you. Good day, Mark. I'd like to start, if I can, Janis, by looking back at the end of last year, which which obviously saw two crucial um, international meetings, COP27, which took place in Egypt, um, and COP15 in Montreal, um, as important, perhaps even more so. Um, both of those meetings in different ways were of critical importance to the mitigation of climate change and reversing the loss of biodiversity. I'd be interested in what your takeaways were from those meetings and the extent to which you think either or both of them rose to the challenges that we face. Indeed, uh, extremely important meetings. Uh, I would dare to say one more successful than the other, but uh, both very important in our collective fight against the climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, as you know, Mark, uh, the major success of the COP27 in, in Egypt was considered to be the loss and damage. This is actually not uh, very seriously contributing to limiting warming, uh, but if you want the positive side of that kind of agreement, which I see is that it's actually the first time an acknowledgement of the high-income countries of the responsibility uh, for the situation in which we uh, are and uh, I do firmly believe that this is uh, creating a good base from which we could uh, better address now the questions which would uh, focus on the core issues related to the warming itself. I'm, I see two main or three main problems which are linked to the, to the climate convention. In a way, it has a bit too narrow focus only on CO2 emissions and not addressing also the parallel questions which are connected to that. And uh, sometimes it's not addressing the questions in enough systemic way. For example, looking to how to deal with the transport system, but not really putting the transport system in the overall mobility system. And uh, one thing which I also see as a bit problematic is that too much of the focus is on the cleaning and the supply side and not enough on the demand side, meaning that in a way uh, it is focusing more on how to, uh, how to clean up uh, the wrong economic system, but not asking how we can improve the things which are leading to some of the relations, which are the consequence of this economic system and leading to climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, COP15 in Montreal was uh, quite successful. Uh, by the way, uh, you might remember that I was uh, heading the European Commission negotiation uh, team in Nagoya COP10, uh, which was considered at that time to be extremely successful. That was 2010. We have at that time adopted AICHI targets. Uh, the not very good news is that uh, more or less majority of those targets were not met uh, 10 years after. And that's why uh, it was extremely important that this monitoring and implementability of everything what was actually dealt with in Montreal would be better, uh, better addressed. Uh, Montreal had some important agreements, in particular on financial and on target side. 
but again, uh, critical will be implementation. And I sincerely hope that the monitoring is better organized than it was 10 years ago. To conclude, I think um, many people are saying that it's no more time to lose. Um, it's probably the most frequent and uh, most repeated sentence. But the reality is that it's really no, mind, no more time to lose for those kind of sentences. We simply need to be clear about that. And uh, when we look also from our food system area, uh, one of the important considerations is coming from the International Resource Panel, where we have, where we understand that uh, that uh, basically uh, uh, majority of the consequences of the land-related biodiversity loss are connected to the uh, extraction and processing of biomass, which uh, to a large extent points the finger to. Uh, food systems, forestry, fisheries, and I think uh, we have an important role in that respect. It is clear that, uh, that uh, high-income countries have more responsibility for the current situation, and it is also clear that the most important thing which we would now need to do is looking in the first place in the mirror and also addressing some of the questions which are connected to overproduction and overconsumption of nat uh, natural resources. Yanis, just a follow-up question on, on that. I mean, you talked about um, the, the perhaps narrow view of COP27, not including transport. You touched on the point of um, supply-side concentration and not enough on the demand side. I, I just wonder, what, why do you think that we find it so difficult to have that holistic view, which, in, at least to, to, to some commentators' argument, is is absolutely necessary if we're going to get the action that we need. It is difficult because it's more difficult part of the question because uh, uh, putting in the center uh, the the question who it's actually currently surpassing planetary boundaries would clearly point the finger onto high-income countries. And... Uh, uh, it would put in the center of our attention the questions about overproduction and overconsumption. For example, if you would talk only about how to clean uh, the steel industry production, as important as that question, by the way, is, but not ask how much of that steel is actually used for underutilized cars or empty houses, you are simply not answering the whole question. And I think uh, this second part of the question is, of course, uh, more uh, more difficult. It's touching the very essence of the basics on which uh, gross domestic product is actually based. And it's touching some of the questions which currently are not still equally represented in this quest against the climate change as the supply side questions. Mm. I mean, linked to that, then, as as we start 2023, you know, g given what you've just said, to what extent are you optimistic or indeed pessimistic that we can collectively rise to the challenges that we face, take on the difficult questions, whether that's in relation to climate change, biodiversity loss, or, or obviously, as part of that, building a more resilient food and agriculture system? Yeah, uh, I think... One thing it's clear, there are many interesting and good developments, and there are many people in whatever levels with really good intentions and initiatives. Uh, what I'm afraid sometimes is that we use 
these good initiatives, these good examples as an excuse not to deal with the main system challenges uh, and, and related questions, those we have addressed in the, in the previous question. Uh, and I see that kind of development in governments, in business, among ordinary people. So we simply have to understand that it will be difficult to solve the riddle in which we are caught with, with only few of good examples, which could hardly be expendable on the global level. And that we need to go to the core of the drivers and pressures which are leading us in the direction where we currently are. And uh, critical to that are, of course, market incentives, which are sent to producers and consumers. Uh, if, for example, we are asking consumers to behave uh, responsibly, but at the same time, we are giving them the signal that if they, for example, buy a food uh, which is more produced, more environmentally friendly, and uh, which is of a higher quality that we have to pay much more, that it's in contradiction with everything uh, uh, I was taught uh, as a student of the economy. So it's it's uh, until these uh, incentives are as they are, it's rather hard to be uh, to be optimistic. Uh, uh, and the reason for that is that somehow we are not yet ready to look into the mirror and ask the difficult questions related to uh, overproduction and overconsumption in high-income countries and the. Uh, uh, and and adding this to the cleaning of the production side, it's mm. also interesting if we are looking to the uh, to the ten major risks which were just recently published at World Economic Forum. Uh, they do a kind of distinction between those which we are facing in ten years optic and those in the two years perspective, and in the two years perspective. They are quite different than in the 10 years perspective, but in the 10 years perspective, practically all the risks are related to environment. They are related to climate, to biodiversity, all those things which we know that it's important that we address already now. So for me, it would be critical that while we save or solve the questions which are related to the shorter perspective, that these solutions are actually already uh, in mind with how we simultaneously address also the longer term risks. I think that the lessons learned last year through the COVID war, uh, terrible war, we, which we are fa uh, facing the hottest summers are more than clear that, uh, that uh, uh, the change is imminent, uh, that we are very fragile and that uh, uh, strengthening our resilience all across the board, it's basically the best way how to how to uh, uh, how to handle all those basic uh, major challenges which we are facing uh, but mark on a personal level i will always remain an optimist uh, because as you know optimists live longer and also better <laughs> this is absolutely um true yanas uh, for sure um I, I just I'll ask you in a second actions that you'd like to see. You you touched on some of them from from consumers, but I, I just want to pick up on that point you you made about short versus long term. Do, do, do you think that the war in Ukraine, the the COVID pandemic, the extreme weather that we have experienced, really across the northern hemisphere as well as in the southern hemisphere over the last two to three years? Do you think that people are more aware of the fragility of the planet today than they have been at any point in the past? 
it's a kind of um, mixed feeling because in a way this is uh, exposing some of the of the immediate uh, uh, needs and questions which would need to be addressed for example in the context of the food prices or in the context of the energy provision but at the same time if we don't understand that these effects of the fragility to which we were already through many years exposed cannot be handled only by fixing those short-term challenges, then we simply don't understand what, uh, what is the lesson which we can learn from all those developments. Uh, you know, taking painkillers to address some systemic diseases, it's never ending well. It's actually more hiding the disease and which is then emerging in more, uh, even in more dreadful way mm. and consequences later on. Yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a good analogy as you um as you say with the um with the painkillers that um it, it it's easy to mask the uh the symptoms without enabling us to to get to the cause, and in that in that respect, if I touch on some of the actions that you think different stakeholders should take, I mean, you, you've you've touched a little bit on consumers and and signals that we send to consumers in terms of their own behavior, um. But what else do you think needs to be done, key actions from government, business, or, or indeed NGOs um, that, that might increase your confidence, let's put it that way, um, that we can indeed overcome these challenges? Yeah, uh, I would definitely uh, start by repeating that we should systematically try to address and correct the market signals. Uh, but uh, uh, I will tell you also why, why I'm not too optimistic that this could be quickly done. We, in a way, uh, we got used uh, as producers and consumers not to either integrate some of those things into the costs or as consumers that that we should actually bear the cost of, of uh, in particular, some of uh, an environmental depletion, uh, nature depletion in uh, in our in our daily behavior and our uh, our daily uh, daily uh, consumption, so I don't believe that this could be done quickly. Even if I think that uh, that uh, focusing on on tax systems, on subsidies, on public procurement, on tax havens, and <clears throat> similar, it's definitely something uh, which we should do and should be part of our activities. Uh, part of our activities should be working also on the social acceptance of the transition. So on one hand, creating enough awareness, so buy-in, importance uh, among, among the citizens, everybody, uh, that improving uh, uh, those, those conditions it's, uh, or improving the conditions for those in need who are already today living on the edge, it's critical for the acceptance of the transformation, which we want to see in the direction of the sustainability, uh, which means in short, making our societies more equal. It's a kind of a precondition for the successful uh, uh, environmental related transition. And uh, I think that both questions somehow need to go hand in hand. We have seen many of the examples where good intentions ended uh, relatively bad because there was uh, cl uh, clearly no uh, readiness and acceptance of some of the measures. Uh, so 
in in that situation, what I do believe could be a kind of a, this bridge between this uh, longer term uh, activity and 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 our our uh, activities uh, should, could be could be actually more focusing on uh, on uh, different kind of business models. The business models which would, in the first place, have in mind how to provide human needs with using less of natural resources. I will give you one example from the uh, from the uh, food system area. Uh, you can uh, today uh, selling pesticides to protect uh, the against the pests. Uh, it's actually pretty much still uh, still kind of prevailing way of dealing with the uh, uh, with the health of the uh, of the plants. So mm -hmm. uh, imagine. So uh, in 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 essence, anybody who is producing the pesticides is interested to produce them and sell them more because their profit is based on that. But imagine the situation that they would actually not uh, sell the pesticides, but rather protection of the one hectare of land against the pests, uh, which would, in a way, uh, create two things. On one hand, it would incentivize producers to save the pesticides because they would become not their profit, but actually the base for their cost. But on the other hand, it would provide also the answers of uh, how to address some of the uh, major concerns which are linked to uh, small farms, which are in particular prevailing in Europe. Uh, because small farmers many times don't have, on one hand, the funding that they can afford the high-tech solutions, nor they have the knowledge that they can apply them. So if those companies who are today selling the pesticides would actually provide them with a service, including uh, uh, the knowledge and uh, address that question of funding, because at the end of the day, implicitly, the farmers would pay also for uh, for that, but not, of course, buying the very, uh, very uh, expensive equipment. This would be a nice way, which would, through the business model, already ensure that uh, the produce that producers would somehow follow the same incentives as could be given through the market signals. At the end of the day, we have uh, the documents uh, uh, like Farm to Fork and the last uh, CBD 15 requirements, which are sending us in the direction that we should limit the uh, the use of the pesticides in the future, and and uh, with that somehow the the overall story would would become consistent. So I think there are many things which we can do, uh, with which we could already in this I would say midterm transition period create those bridges through which we would fundamentally do the core thing, and the core thing is basically how to meet human needs with using less resources and energy. I think related to that, Janus, if I can conclude on, on your thoughts on this question, um, the, the forum, of course, its, its mission is to help to build a more resilient and sustainable food and agriculture system. Different partners and stakeholders that we engage, bringing them together to create new ideas, unlock innovation. Um, I've certainly been encouraged by um, what I've seen across different stakeholders in terms of the beginnings of those business models that um, you referred to. I think making food and agriculture quite a, an exciting space to, to, to work in. 
when you reflect on the role that the forum can play, um, we're now 15 years old. What role, what what would you expect the forum to be doing this year and beyond um, to, to nurture this thinking and hopefully to stimulate some of those ideas about changing business models and um, acting in a different way? Yeah, uh, as you have said, Mark, the role of FFA has always been, uh, of the forum has always been to provide the floor for different options, uh, to share, listen to the arguments of those which we agree with or disagree with. So I think in the recent years, we have done some uh, major shifts from looking to uh, from looking only to the agriculture more broadly to expanding that view to the overall food system and also uh, uh, expanding the space in which we are actually trying to contribute with our uh, our solutions and debate from European to more global in particular across the uh, in particular strengthened the cross Atlantic collaboration. But as mentioned before, uh, the beginning of, of our discussion, there is indeed no more time to lose. And uh, what is currently needed is, I think, a shift from uh, from uh, from uh, something which we address with our words to better implementation in practice. So in relation to policy proposals, as well as in relation to the uh, to the real actual field activities. So I think we now have a unique structure of partners. Uh, covering all the governance aspects uh, and uh, a clearer commitment from such a combined wise would be for me quite an important step in the right direction. Some avenues where we could seek for alignment and commitment, uh, uh, for example, could be linked to the regenerative agriculture, uh, to ensuring that the use of natural capital by the agri-food system is properly valued, accounted for, or work in direction of alignment, more this uh, uh, question which we have addressed previously, public and market-based incentives, or sharing knowledge, pursuing innovation in technology, practices that support both food, environmental security, move away from those who are not, uh, maybe integrating the principles of fairness and sustainability into supply chain more deeply, and obviously also uh, somehow informing the, the development of agri-food policies uh, practically at all governance levels. So we, we should push each other inside and outside our forum to go further and to go faster. And we also need to continue with the focus on using our convening power to find solutions. So in short, what would be for me the most important is that the partners would be consistent with our joint understanding what forum stands for, a food system in line with sustainability needs on one hand, protecting nature and providing a high quality acceptable food for all. So consistent also when it comes to the implementation in relation to, I don't know, European Commission plans, Convention on Biological uh, Diversity, on Convention on climate, uh, climate Plans, and so on. And this would be, for me, a true test of our, one hand, on one hand, sincerity and honesty, but on the other hand, also the impact. It's the impact which we should do. That's very clear, Yanis, and uh, a clear 
call to action, I think, if uh, if I may say so. Yanis, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You've been listening to another edition of Food Systems Podcast with me, Mark Tetrington. Join us again next time. Mm-hmm.